Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations, to find my backlist of interviews, or to check out my summer reading guide for 2023, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. There is also a link to the summer reading guide in the show notes. If you are interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group to access digital early reads and pre-pub author chats, as well as my new Traveling Galley program. July's early read is The Book of Silver Linings by Nan Fisher, and for August, it is Mother-Daughter Murder Night by Nina Simon. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, Fiona Davis returns to chat with me about The Spectacular. Fiona is the New York Times bestselling author of six previous novels, The Dollhouse, The Address, The Masterpiece, The Chelsea Girls, The Lions of Fifth Avenue, and The Magnolia Palace. She lives in New York City and is a graduate of the Columbia Journalism School. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Welcome, Fiona. How are you today? Very well. Thank you for having me. As always, I am thrilled to pieces that you are here because I am a huge fan of your books and you're one of my favorite guests to have. So I can't wait to dive in. Oh, and I love your podcast. I I listen to it religiously. It's just fantastic. When you're so sweet, you send me notes from time to time about certain episodes and I just love that. It always makes my day. (laughs) It's what I listen to when I go for a run. If there's a new episode, I'm like, oh, there we go. I love that. Well, good. Well, before I ask any questions about the book, will you give me a quick synopsis about The Spectacular for those that won't have read it yet? Sure. It takes place at Radio City Music Hall in the 1950s from the point of view of a rockette named Marion, who kind of goes against her father's wishes to become a rockette. And she gets caught up in this deadly adventure um, that includes a, a mad bomber who's been terrorizing the city and who's based on a real bomber, believe it or not. And I like to say it's got some glamour, some romance, some thrills, a lot of mystery. And it it was just a a real joy to to write. And I'm excited to get it out into the world. Well, I think we have talked about this in the past, but my daughter goes to college in New York City. So I'm up there a fair amount. And we recently took a Grand Central Terminal tour and the guide gave a shout out to your book at the end. And I was like, oh, I love her. I'm so excited that you mentioned her book. So I thought that was so much fun. And then whenever we're at the New York Public Library, that book is there. The city must just love that you are slowly recognizing one iconic building after another. I love that. Yes, I have to say Grand Central and and the New York Public Library have just been so supportive and wonderful. 
And it's just a joy getting to know the people behind the buildings, like the Frick Collection, which is the setting of Magnolia Palace. You know, the staff there were just so wonderful and we're, we're all, you know, still friends and still in contact. And it just, it's like learning. I learn as much as the reader does. And it's such a joy. Well, and I was with my daughter up there a week and a half ago, and I checked to see if the Frick had reopened yet because I've been there, but it's been so many years. And I'm dying to visit now that I read the Magnolia Palace and it is not open yet. No, it looks like it'll be next year, but it'll be really great when they do because the second floor will be open. That's where the bedrooms were. So I, I think it's going to be, it'll, it'll be worth the wait, but I agree. I, I feel so bad that I wrote this book right as it shut down. <laughs> Everybody's anxiously awaiting its reopening. Yes. Well, do people constantly suggest new buildings to you? And I know you have a really cool story for how this book came about, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But I mean, are people always offering, well, what about this building? What about that building? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's, it's really great. You know, and it's so interesting to see what buildings come up all the time. And, and sometimes I'm really surprised. Yeah, you know, it's just, it's so full of great buildings. And then I'll travel and people will recommend buildings in their own city, which are absolutely valid. There's just so many books to be written, I guess. You're like, okay, when I get done with New York, I'll start spreading my wings and trying buildings in these other cities. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, let's talk about your story for Radio City Music Hall and how you decided to write this one. Yeah, so the idea really came through an email I got on my author website from a woman named Sandy, and she's in her 80s, and she, she lived in uh, South Carolina. And she said, you know, I'm a former Rockette. And if you want to know about the secrets, you know, within Radio City Music Hall, I'd love to talk to you. And so, of course, I couldn't resist. And it was it came right at the right time where I was just, you know, starting to think about the next book. I don't plan ahead. I don't have lists of landmarks. And so it just popped in right at the right time. And we talked and we had this wonderful conversation. And she had danced there in 59 to 62. She met her husband, Bob, there. He worked the lighting board. They were both 19. Like they just had this wonderful, you know, story about being at Radio City. And I thought I was pretty intimidated because I don't know much about dance and I'm certainly not a dancer, but I couldn't resist. And that letter is in your recent newsletter, as well as in your book club kit, which is on your website and on Penguin Random House's website. Yes, exactly. They did such a great job with it. They really did with the whole book club kit. In fact, I was really enjoying looking through that. Yeah, yeah, they're marvelous. I've, the, the team at Dutton has just been incredible in terms of, you know, marketing a book is it takes a village and, and there's just so many people who have my back. Well, and you led me right into my next question because I literally was going to ask, was it intimidating to tackle Radio City Music Hall? And you mentioned the Rockettes, but I would think it would be very intimidating to do both Radio City and the Rockettes. Absolutely. I, absolutely. Because you don't want to do either one a disservice. They're both institutions here in New York and so beloved. And so, you know, luckily, though, I was able to kind of find this network of Rockettes who danced there, some in the 40s, some in the 50s, some more recently. And so that was helpful because you really got this detailed behind the scene look at what it was like. And the small things like, you know, one talked about how there was one conductor who would speed up on the last show of the day because he wanted to catch his train. And so they were all dancing away and just getting, having to speed up and go faster and faster and faster. And, and so after a while, you know, at first I was nervous about writing about the place and, and the Rockettes, but the more I learned about the history and the more I talked to people, it felt 
like it would be a good fit for, for one of my books. Well, and it's like the New York Public Library. Everybody knows Radio City Music Hall. So no matter who you mention it to, they're going to be like, oh, yes. And the Rockettes, because they tour now, too, and have for years. So it's something that is so familiar to so many people. It's true. And, but you know what was interesting was learning about the history of it and learning that you know it hasn't always been a concert hall, which is what it is now. In the past, it was a movie palace. And so they showed four movies a day. And there were over 700 movie premieres at Radio City, including King Kong and White Christmas. And so there were four shows a day. And if you bought a ticket to a movie, you got a ticket to the stage show. And that included the Rockettes, as well as the Radio City Ballet Corps, believe it or not, and a choral ensemble. And sometimes they'd have like a juggler. And so people would come and and watch the film and then watch the stage show. And so it was this intense job for these Rockettes. They'd do four shows a day, which meant, I think, 600 kicks per day, because there was a kick line in every number that they did. And they would do this for three or four weeks straight, and then they would get one week off. And so it was just this incredible, you know, feat to, to be a Rockette. These days, they, they do the, the Christmas show, and that runs from the end of November to January 1st. And they do, they, they do in between two and five shows a day for that, so that's intense. But this was year-round, and it was a total of 46 girls, and 36 would be dancing at any one time. So that was a real surprise to learn how intense it was and try and bring that to the page. And do they only do the Christmas show now? They do an Easter show every so often, but I don't think they did it this year. And like you said, I think they do they do tours and do things like that, but it's just not like it was in the 50s, 60s. Can you imagine how in shape you'd be if you had to do four of those shows a day for three weeks? Yeah, I know. I know. And so because of that, because they were there all the time, Radio City really was a little city for them in many ways, where they had dressing rooms, rehearsal halls, a cafeteria. They had a dormitory for when they had to stay late. It had a little movie screening theater for them to get get the early movies. Up on the roof, there was a shuffle ball court and wiffle ball, which I'm sure the, the men in the skyscrapers nearby loved watching them when they came out in between shows to hang out. It just was, was really incredible. There was a nurse on call all the time. And so that to me was fascinating that they really pretty much lived there. And, you know, like on, on when there was a premiere of a movie, they would get there at 5 a.m. They'd have a 7 a.m. dress rehearsal. They'd do a photo call. Then they'd do four shows a day. And then if there was a new movie coming, they'd have to fit in rehearsals in between the shows or after late at night or early in the morning. I mean, it was just intense. And it created this sisterhood between the Rockettes, where, you know, the way every one of them I talked to spoke with such joy and elation about their time as a Rockette. And there were so many strict requirements about the height and the size of the shoe and everything, right? Yeah, yeah, you had to be, I mean, when the Rockettes were founded, this was funny, they were founded in 1925 by this guy named Russell Marker, who remained the director choreographer until 1971. And when it started, you had to be between 5'2 and 5'6 and a half. And today you're between 5'5 five five and 5'10 and a half. So that's interesting how it's shifted. But if, you, if you're under or over those measurements, you can't even audition. And yeah, it, you know, back in the 50s, you weren't allowed to get a suntan, a, a sunburn or a suntan, or you'd have to sit out. You couldn't gain or lose weight. It was pretty strict, you know, because they wanted to keep the illusion that it was just this precision dance line of almost the same person over and over and over. 
Yeah. And, and so that's why, you know, these rules were in place. I thought you brought that to the page so well. It was something I was already familiar with. I've seen the Rockettes a number of times. But this idea that they really were trying to make it look like everybody was exactly the same and it was precision oriented and very focused. And I just felt you really captured that. Thank you. Yeah, I was just so surprised at how hard that is. You know, I mean, these dancers are really good at everything at ballet, at tap, at jazz. They have to be at the top of their game. And then they have to do these numbers that are really intricate with a huge smile on their face and, you know, without showing how difficult it is. It's incredible. And not only are they intricate for themselves, but they're intricate in the way they interact with each other. And that was another cool thing I learned in your book in terms of how their arms were behind each other, but not resting on each other and how you had to do everything at exactly the right time, especially when they fall over and some of those different things or everything would go awry. Yeah, yeah. That was the the idea of this illusion was, you know, when they're doing the kick line, it looks like they're all hanging on to each other. But in fact, their hands are not touching the back of the woman next to them. Um, there's, you know, a few inches of space in between. And so, but there's this illusion that it's this amazing support group. And the same with, you know, it looks like they're all the same height, but in fact, the taller women are at the middle of the kick line and the shorter ones are at the end. And then the hemlines are all made to be even. And so I just, you know, love that it's this very careful, carefully manufactured illusion that's really hard to do. Physically, it takes so much out of you. I just thought all of that was so fascinating. And I was just turning the pages like crazy, learning all those great details that are just woven right into this really interesting and sometimes intense story. Thank you. Yeah, that was that was fun to do. That was a, a challenge, but a lot of fun. Well, I always love asking historical fiction authors if they have things that they had to leave out because you do do so much research. And I'm sure you end up with this long list of things like, well, I want to incorporate this. I want to incorporate that. But then there must be some things that there's just not a way to weave in without you feeling like you've done an info dump. Were there things like that that you couldn't weave into this, but that you thought were really cool and you wished you could? Oh, I'm trying to think. You know, in talking to the Rockettes, there were there was so much about what they were doing at the time or, or just the joy of doing it. And I remember one Rockette talked about, and I should have included this, but she talked about walking down Fifth Avenue in the middle of the night with all her friends singing at the top of their lungs and and just, you know, linked arm in arm. And it's just such a wonderful moment, especially when you're thinking that was in the 40s and 50s, right? When women couldn't have a checking account and they, you know, were, were very much supposed to be nurses or secretaries or teachers. And here these women were independent, living, you know, on their own, making their own money. And I just love that. I hope that feeling got into the book without actually having that scene because I, I kind of wish I'd included it. It definitely did because that was another thing I was going to raise because Marion does have this trouble. Her father and really her mother don't want her doing this. She has this relationship. He wants her to settle down. So she really is going outside the expectations that society puts on somebody in that time period. And I felt that was another thing that you really translated well to the page, that it was really hard for these women. They were doing something independent and they were living a very wonderful life for themselves, but they had a lot of pressure to not do it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I talked to one Rockette who her father was just adamantly opposed to her dancing on the stage. And it took Russell Markert, you know, to really reassure him that she would be able to go back to college. It would, you know, just be for a year if that's what she wanted. 
And, and, you know, but then that's it after she did a year. And then her father said, yep, you're going back to college. She didn't have a choice in that. And, um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I'm just always interested in how things have changed over time or how they haven't in terms of women's issues and agency. And this felt like the 1950s felt like a good time to set the book because that was going on. It made me think a little bit about the dollhouse and the Barbizon and these women that were you know, setting out on their own and doing something different than women had been able to do up until then. Yeah. Oh, you're absolutely right. And, you know, The Dollhouse was my very first book and it was so much fun to write. And I, I, you know, I'm still very close to those characters in many ways. And, and what's nice is Marion is a really outgoing, creative, smart, disciplined woman. And so to be able to show her thriving in this environment and being challenged, really being challenged in the way that she hadn't expected. And then to have that change the course of her life it was kind of similar to what happens in the dollhouse in, in some ways. It's just a, a, the fifties are a really great era. They're great in terms of fashions <laughs> and describing fashions. I, I find that really enjoyable and just creating women who, who have to really rise out of the patriarchy, I guess, in a way and stand up on their own two feet and say, nope, this is the way it's going to be. And I think people look at the 60s and think it was such a seminal decade and so many things changed. But I really think the 50s is the beginning of that. You have World War II in the 40s, and it takes a little while for everybody to get home from the war and realize things are going to change based on what women were doing at home during the war. And so by the 50s, there is more pushback from women saying, wait a minute, like we were able to do all of these things in the 40s and suddenly we're losing these rights. We don't really want to do that. Yeah. And that seems to be a cycle through history. It happened World War I as well. And it just, you know, we, we go through these cycles. And that's what I think I've picked up writing historical fiction is things tend to replay themselves, whether it's the McCarthy era or, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment, or it's just fascinating to see how we seem to never learn. <laughs> exactly. I was just going to say that. How history repeats itself. And sadly, we don't seem to learn from that. You usually pair some event from the time period in which you're writing that is based on something that really happened. So in this book, it's the Big Apple Bomber, which you referenced a little bit ago. Let's talk some more about that. How do you decide what you're going to write about from that time period? How do you even find things to write about? And how do you decide what will work for this particular building? Yeah, I always find it helpful to find this hook so that there's something in real life going on that, that kind of expands the story outside of the building and its residents. And so here, I just searched around for what was going on in the 50s. And I remember coming across a timeline and it said, oh, in 1957, they caught the Mad Bomber. And that's what he was known as in real life. And I thought, the Mad Bomber in New York City? I've never heard of that. And neither had anyone I talked to. And then I found this wonderful book called Incendiary by Michael Cannell. And it was all about this guy who over 16 years, so through the 40s and 50s, he set 33 bombs off in iconic New York City locations, many of which I've written about, like Grand Central, New York Public Library. He struck Radio City twice, and he injured 15 people over those years, some seriously, and they just couldn't catch him. And then they finally, you know, eventually did catch him using criminal profiling for the very first time. And I was just blown away. I, I, you know, I thought that I have to include that. And the fact that he'd set bombs at Radio City made me think, okay, this was meant to be, this is a good pairing. And so in the book, she kind of, the Marion gets caught up in the hunt for who I call the big apple bomber, because I've changed some of the details 
And she has to kind of team up with this brilliant but introverted psychiatrist named Peter to try and figure out who this guy is. And she gets pulled in for very personal reasons. Did you have to do a lot of research about profiling? No, because it was so early in, in criminal profiling. Basically, the, the man who, who did this in real life, his name was, was James Russell. He was a psychiatrist. He looked at all the letters that the, the mad bomber had sent to the police over the years and came up with this profile. And so, you know, there wasn't science behind it or anything. It was just him figuring out what kind of personality would do this and, and looking at his letters and figuring out, okay, his language is unusual. So that means he's probably from this country or this area. And that means this, and that means this. So I just followed his roadmap, really, um, in terms of the bomber. And my favorite one was that when you find the bomber, he wrote, he'll be wearing a double-breasted suit and it will be buttoned. And we won't give anything away, but needless to say, the science of uh, criminal profiling was born. I just think that is so cool that he on his own came up with this whole concept that now is used regularly and very effectively. And at the time, the police were like, well, this is crazy. Exactly. Like, what's he talking about? Exactly. And so it, it's just a, it's a really wonderful story. It is a wonderful story. And it plays well in the book as well. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I, I haven't done a thriller. Not that this is kind of thriller light in a lot of ways. But, um, I, you know, I think after however many books, it's just fun to try to play around with things and try something new. And so, you know, I'm known for the dual timelines, and this is more in 1956. There's a few sections that are in 1992 from the point of view of a Rockette looking back at her life, but that's not an equivalent storyline. It's really taking place in the 50s. And so adding that thriller element also challenged me and made me, you know, have to work as a writer, which I think you want to always be growing. Trying something different. Yes. Well, what was the hardest part about writing the book? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I had so much going on between the Rockettes and this hunt for this bomber. You know, I wanted there to be a touch of romance as well. And so working that in was a lot of fun, but it was a challenge because they were two very different people from two very different walks of life, Marion and Peter. And so kind of bringing them together was, was a challenge, but in a really good way. Yeah, I think, you know, the idea that these opposites attract can be true. And so I wanted to try and make, see if I could make that happen. I like that. I was curious to see what you would say. Well, you know me in covers. So a while back, you connected me with your cover designer, Christopher Lynn, for one of my behind the scenes interviews, which was a very popular interview, by the way. So thank you. Oh, I loved it. I just have to say, any, any, everyone just go back and, and listen to that because he speaks so eloquently. And your questions are so good. I learned so much from that episode. It was terrific. Well, I loved it too, because I do love covers so much. So it was really interesting to learn some of the behind the scenes dynamics, literally how it all unfolds. But the timing was so good. He had just finished working on your cover when I interviewed him. I interviewed him several months before the episode ran. So when I interviewed him, he had just finished working on the cover. You all had gotten it finalized, but it hadn't been revealed yet. And he indicated that you had wanted to go in a different direction. You wanted it to look different. You didn't want a person on the cover. And then it was perfect because by the time the episode aired, you had just done your cover reveal. So then I was able to listen back to what he had said and think about it all. So tell me about that, about how you wanted to go in a different direction and why. Yeah, you know, I think historical fiction is known for women looking wistfully into the distance in their period dress type thing. 
And, you know, I love those books and, and some of my books, I think are great examples of it. I think the Magnolia Palace is just a beautiful, beautiful cover. But for this book, because it was a different kind of book, I didn't, you know, it was like, okay, what do we do? Put a rockette out front, you know, that seemed a little cheesy in a way and just too on the nose. And so I said, you know, can we play around with something different? You know, covers these days are, are really dynamic. The colors are beautiful. There's just so much vibrancy. And can we do something different? And so he came up with this beautiful shot of the marquee. And the way the lights are, it's as if you're, watch, you're looking at it in a, in a New York nighttime during a, there's a slight fog. And so it just looks mystical and, and beautiful. And the colors are vibrant. And there's no woman looking wistful. And I don't think it needs it. You know, it kind of, it kind of tells you what the book's going to be like inside. It's going to be powerful and a little shocking, um, but very colorful. And so I, I think it's perfect. The minute we saw it, I knew that would be it. And the light coming out from the whole building, all of it is just fabulous. And I love the font that your name and the spectacular are written in. It is really just gorgeous. And he has, you know, he has a challenge every time because it's a different decade. It's a completely different story book to book. It's not like they're related. And so he has to figure out a way to make it feel cohesive while at the same time giving each book its own personality. And I think he's just done brilliantly. He and his team are, are amazing. Well, and I loved that he didn't know the story about the New York Public Library one, the Lions of Fifth Avenue. He didn't know that when he had put the woman in the yellow dress that you had then incorporated that into your story. Yeah, I know. That was so funny. Yeah, I guess, you know, we hadn't, we'll see each other at the, sometimes at the book launches and that kind of thing. But when you're doing the cover, it's your agent and your editor kind of presenting it to you. You don't work directly with the art team. And I think they do that because I'm sure some authors would be really unmanageable. You know, so there's these layers of safety between the art department and the author. And, um, and so we didn't have a direct interaction about it. It's just me saying, please tell him I love it. <laughs> and so, yeah, he didn't know about with the dress that I made the, the character really love vintage clothing just because the dress on the front was so, so beautiful. So I was happy that I actually got to tell him something when he was teaching me so many cool things. <laughs> I know. Well, what about the title, The Spectacular? Yeah. You know, each book is tough because I need a title that refers to the story in some way and the building. And that can be tough. Um, this one, we, we went through a number of ideas and then my editor said, how about the spectacular? And we all thought, oh yeah, of course, because Marion in it is a really creative, dynamic woman and a wonderful dancer. And she's based on this dancer named Vera Ellen, who was a, was a rockette when she was very young and she just couldn't keep in line with everybody. She was bigger than everyone. She kicked higher. She, you know, jumped higher and she eventually quit before being fired because she just wasn't working out. And she went on to an amazing film career and starred in white Christmas among other movies. And I wanted my character, Marion to have a similar issue where she's just bigger than life in many ways and, and has to kind of pull her personality back in, in order to conform to this precision dance troupe that she very much wants to belong to. And so she's spectacular in, in that way. And of course, that's what the, the Christmas show is called. And the building itself is a magnificent piece of art deco architecture here in New York. So that's spectacular as well. I did love that about Marion. She had to temper herself and it was so difficult for her because she had so much talent and she was ready to just get out there and do her thing, but she was not as precise as she needed to be. So she kept having to kind of rope it in. 
Yeah, exactly. Getting in trouble. I, I spoke with a, um, a ballet dancer who had danced with San Francisco Ballet, and she's very tall. And she talked about how hard it was because if she had to do an arabesque and lift her leg up, her leg couldn't go where she wanted it to because otherwise it would you know, be higher than the other girls. And so she had to keep on using muscles to restrain herself, which is really hard and very hard on your body. And so I tried to kind of put that into Marion's world. And then different than you're wanting to do because you're wanting to extend your leg as far as it can go and you're having to lower it to a place that's unnatural for you. Yeah. And that's the thing about being creative is I think people who are creative in whatever field, they just want to make a splash. You know, you have so much energy, you have so much to tell. And the question is, when do you have to rope that in, in terms of serving the whole, whether it's say a theater company or a dance troupe, you know, when do you, when do you pull back? And then when do you need to step up and, and say something? And that, that's true in a community, in a corporation, you know, and that's really the theme that the book explores is what is the cost of suppressing your own creativity or individuality for the good of the whole? And, and a number of characters have to make that decision. Right. And when is that necessary and when is it not? Right. Exactly. And that's a, a tough question. It is a tough question. And you grapple with it throughout the book. Yeah. Yeah. And in different um, forms. As I was writing it, I realized, oh, this is what this is about. It, it didn't come. I didn't come up with the theme before I started writing. It really just made itself heard, which I think is always a good sign. Most definitely. Yes. Because it came about organically. Yes, exactly. I just mentioned your newsletter a little bit ago, and I have another question from it. In my Patreon Facebook group recently, someone asked why pre-orders are so important. And I know two reasons, hoping to make bestseller list and, and getting the book sold as many times as they can prior to going on sale, and also just building pre-pub buzz with bookstores. But I saw you mention it in your newsletter, so I thought, well, I'd go ahead and ask you, why do authors really want a lot of pre-pub sales? Yeah, it's, you know, one of the things is it does capture people's attention. If a book is really doing well before, and that's the thing is people can see the numbers, people in the industry, and it just sends a signal that this is an important book and people should pay attention. And so the more pre-orders, the more you get that early attention so that you'll get, you know, the, the big reviews or a book club pick somewhere, which would, you know, is, is really powerful. Or as you said, hitting the New York Times list is, of course, a, a really big deal, although it's not, you know, it, it shouldn't be the goal. I, I think it's a, it's a lovely add-on if you hit that list. But for the publishers, it means more, more books sold and more money. And all the numbers for your book are really collected in those first two weeks of, of sales. And that's when all the pre-orders kind of flood in. And so you want to kind of get a big number of those. It's kind of wonky, but it's just the way the industry works. Well, and I was explaining in the Facebook group that the pre-orders are all counted in that first week of the on-sale. So I know from working at a bookstore, if we had 600 pre-orders for your book, we are accumulating them at the store and putting them in, but the sales actually count towards your first week, correct? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So you want to come out of the gate really strong. And I think that if a bookstore is seeing all sorts of pre-orders for a book, especially one that they might not have had on their radar, that sends a good signal to them like, oh, we need to get this read. We need to make sure we've got plenty of copies of it. But I was just kind of curious to see what you would say as well. Yeah, that's it. And, and that's the thing is hand selling is, is really valuable. And so if a bookseller loves your books and someone comes in, they will, they will make sure they buy it. And, and so booksellers and librarians recommending the book, 
are just a really powerful way to get word of mouth. And when you're just starting out, you know, it, it, there's so many books coming out all the time. I always say that it was a, a mix of, of librarians and booksellers who really got me out there and talked about it and, and, you know, got more and more people to start reading them. And then you just create this really fun wave of, of people who will read your latest book and then they'll go back and read your backlist. And you create this wonderful community of people who've read your books and, and love them, which is what's so great about social media is being able to interact with people who, who have read every book and, you know, have something to say. I think it's wonderful. Well, that's one of the things that I didn't really realize till I worked at an indie bookstore is how many books are coming out every single week. So really, it is hard to rise above all of that. So to have a bookseller saying, I love The Spectacular. This is this new book. It's just come out. It's about Radio City Music Hall. You must read it. It's going to really help compared to the other thousands of books sitting in the bookstore. Exactly. And, you know, that happened to me right there in Houston, where Murder by the Book, which is a wonderful bookstore, you know, the, the, there's a, a bookseller there named John. And at my very first book, he was the one standing up and saying, everybody take notice. And I'm so indebted to him because it made a difference. That's how I learned about it from John, because I would, before I worked there, I was a customer and I would go in all the time and he's like, oh, I've got the perfect book for you. And I loved it. And I was like, okay, I'm sold. So then I now follow every one of your books and I follow you. So I know when books are coming out, when a new cover is released. So yes, I agree with you both about the bookstore and the power of social media. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you know, I always want to know what's happening next. And our timing is so great on the interview because just this morning you posted about your new book deal, which is so exciting. Congratulations with Dutton again. And I love Dutton. So that's wonderful. It's been a great fit for you. But you're going to be writing about the Met. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So the next book will be set at the Met Museum here in New York. And it takes place in the 1970s, pretty much from the point of view of a, an assistant curator who has to team up with an assistant for the Met Gala, which is the big party of the year that they throw, um, to track down a stolen artifact. And it jumps back to 1930s Egypt as well, which I, in fact, just came back from a trip to Egypt to do some research. And so it's a lot. There's a lot going on, and it's a lot for me to, to learn. And it's been really fun to start creating it right now. Well, I was following your trip to Egypt, and then you mentioned it was a research trip. And I was like, oh, this will be so much fun to read about. So did you just have the best time in Egypt? Yeah, yeah, it was incredible. We, we took a boat down the Nile. We saw the pyramids. We did all that. And we had a really great guide who helped in terms of all my, you know, dorky questions about, well, what about this? And what about that? Because my questions are not the typical tourist questions. And so he put up with me very, very patiently. Well, and talk about intimidating. Writing about Radio City Music Hall would be intimidating, but writing about the Met and the Met Gala, again, but you all, you handle it all so well, so I'm sure it's not a problem, but I mean, a, another building that almost everybody's going to know about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's just so much going on there. You know, there's so many departments. It's like, that's like a city as well, but it's been really fun getting to know it and they've been really helpful and welcoming. Oh, good. Yes, I can hardly wait. And that will come out when? That looks like January of 2025. So it'll, it'll, we have, we have time. I figured it was probably 2025. Well, that's very exciting. Thank you. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Ooh, there's a book called Hedge by Jane Delury that um, just came out and it's really wonderful. It's about a woman who's an expert in 
the history of gardens. <laughs> so it's like historical fiction about gardens. Um, but it's also a, a modern tale about a family and a, a woman who has to make choices. And so it's a, you know, it, it's contemporary domestic drama, but wrapped up in, in these beautiful ancient gardens. It's just, it's a wonderfully written book. I couldn't put it down for sure. And then Nicola Harrison has a great book coming out called Hotel Laguna, which is historical fiction set out in California. A great beach book for sure. And then also Wendy Walker is a thriller writer who has a book out called What Remains that will just keep you guessing and has really one of the best plot twists I've read all year. And you and Wendy share a pub date. Yes, yes, we do. And which is a shame because we're friends and it means we can't go to each other's book launches. <laughs> oh, I hadn't even thought about that, but it's kind of fun to share a pub date. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's great. And she's doing a ton. You can find her online. She does a lot of videos and interviews other authors. So she, she's really out there and very connected. It's wonderful to see what she's doing. It's such a small book world. That's one of the things I love about it is it's very supportive. You know, it's, it's a real joy to be part of. That's what I always say too, that it is so supportive and a group of people that just want to build each other up, which I find so delightful. Absolutely. Well, Fiona, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. It was just such a wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you for having me anytime. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one -on -one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.